tonight on what we were dealing with last week on the psychology of atheism, and we're going to just kind of pick up where we left off, but let's have a, have a word of prayer. Father, again, it is our great pleasure to be able to break the bread of life and to be able to fellowship. We're asking you, Lord, that as we understand that two or three, when they gather together, you're in our midst. We, we need your presence. We need your touch. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us insight, provide us with wisdom. So God, give us ears to hear as we share this word and help us to understand the scriptures as we think about reaching people that don't know you, reaching people that do not believe in you. And Father, we're going to be careful to praise you and glorify your name forever and ever in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we concluded with me giving you an illustration of me putting together this whole belief system of evolution, and I put it in something like a chapter and verse. You'll remember that I said that. This is where I want to pick up again. I'm going to read that one more time, and then we're going to read from Acts 17. I put together 14 verses, and it says, In the beginning, which is about 4.6 billion years ago, chance created the universe. The earth was non-existent, but the process of natural selection was real and present. Verse 3. By chance, the Cambrian explosion occurred 530 million years ago, establishing all anatomical designs. For life's origin derived from original chemical constituents of atmosphere and ocean. But just 65 million years ago, a large extraterrestrial body struck the earth, destroying all the dinosaur species. Verse 7. Nonetheless, through chance came the age of the invertebrates. Then by chance came the age of the fishes. By chance came the age of the reptiles. Moreover, chance was the cause of the age of mammals. Verse 11, and later by chance the age of man appeared. Four million years ago in a struggle among organisms for reproductive success, a small lineage of primates evolved upright posture on African savannas. Thus, humans arose as an accidental and dependent outcome of thousands of connected events whose circumstances, had they happened differently, would not have led to human consciousness. In verse 14, so chance made everything and it was good. And we concluded by telling you that if somebody could take that kind of a system of thinking and put faith in it and trust in it and believe it, what would be so difficult with believing in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Rather than allowing chance to be treated as though it is a person or personality, just believe what Genesis 1 tells us quite clearly about what the Lord has done. In Acts chapter 17, we gave you these verses and, and, and wanted you to see that in this chapter in Athens, he's dealing with atheists, agnostics, and he's dealing with uh, people who are fatalists, who believe that everything is predestined. So again, I want to start with verse 16. When Paul, or while Paul, was waiting in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city entirely given to idolatry. I'm paraphrasing there. 
Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Acts 17, verse 18 now. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, we told you that Epicureans were followers of Epicurus who was an atheist. His main belief system was that pleasure should be the chief end of every human being, being happy. And the Stoics, these were the fatalists that believed that everything that happened is predestined. If you're in a car crash, you're predestined and fated by the gods to happen. If you end up uh, having 45 kids, then, I mean, it was, you know, predestined by the gods for you to have 45 kids. Everything was determined beforehand. And it says, they said, what will this babbler say? Other, some said, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For you bring strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. So verse 21 tells us the Athenians, for the most part, enjoyed gossip, liking to hear things. Verse 22, Paul stands up telling these folks, I believe you're superstitious. Verse 23, he speaks about the unknown God, which we told you in the Greek, represents agnostic people. It's a Greek word. There is a God, maybe, But if there is a God, we don't know who he is. We don't know if we can reach him. We don't know if we can touch him, if he's ever communicated with us. But we have this here to 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 symbolize that there's something out there. And then his his sermon, verse 24, God that made the heaven or God that made the world and the things therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now, here's the thing. If, If we're going to talk about reaching people who do not know God, particularly atheists, who have a worldview and an outlook on this planet and on the universe that's so different than ours, then we want to take the approach that Paul took. Because you understand that having had conversations with atheists, you know that they're quite happy to tell you their opinion and they want to debate with you whether or not there is a God, whether you can prove that there's a God and they can't prove there's a God. And you go back and forth. But as we told you before, Genesis 1 does not begin with a debate about the existence of God, it just starts with the belief that there is a God. So that's where you begin your argument. You don't start with trying to figure out whether or not we can reasonably help a person uh, to understand this through just a debate or discussion, but you, you, you take your stance from this position. There is a God. And this is what we learn here from, from Paul. So, so notice, as I slowly look through this, I want you to think to yourself about what scriptures come to mind. Because even though he's not saying, turn to Isaiah, turn to Jeremiah, turn to First King, he's quoting scripture. He's telling these people scripture, and I'll give you the scripture. God that made the world and all things therein, verse 24, the first sentence. When you think of that, what comes to mind? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice where Paul starts with scripture. And then he says in verse 24, that he is Lord of heaven and earth. You also find that in Matthew eleven twenty five. Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank thee, Father. You see? Matthew eleven twenty five. And and it has that in there. And then notice where it says, He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Isaiah sixty six one. God says, Who 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 are you that can build me a home? Heaven is my abode. What is it that you can make with your hands that that can contain me? And then also 
Verse 25, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. Isaiah 42, 5 says that God is the one who gives breath and life to all people and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times. Determined the times. I believe it's Psalm 31 I want to say verse 5, but Psalm 31 says, My times are in thy hands. So every season of your life, the times of your life, are controlled by God, governed by God. And this is before appointed and the bounds their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him. Okay. Isaiah 40 and 18 says that God is not a graven image or something related to gold or silver. Now, if, if you're going to witness to people that don't know God, we're going to take this example from Paul. Number one, we need to accept the truth of Scripture. Now understand, when you're talking to an unbeliever, they have already accepted someone's belief system. Someone has taught them something, an academic, a book, a friend, a relative. I told you in the, in the last teaching that no one is born into this world an atheist. It's impossible. Any more than anybody's born in this world a racist. Little children, toddlers, will play with anybody of any color and have a good time with kids that just, you know, just having a fun time. They don't know anything about that. Someone has to program them and put information in to cause them to magnify the differences rather than the similarities. The same way we teach a child Christianity or someone teaches a child Buddhism or, 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 or Islam. No one comes into this world an atheist. They have to learn that. And, and, and the same way that is acquired by information and then a person takes their stance in that particular perspective, <clears throat> you've got to be like Paul and say that you accept the truth of Scripture. And then, like Paul, quote authors who believe the same. So that's why he's able to quote Genesis. He's able to quote Isaiah. He's able to quote different people because he understands we are all in agreement about this basic fact. God made all of this. He made everything. Now, there will be people who will try to argue with you and say, look, let me, let me talk to you about what I think are contradictions in the Bible. I'll show you some things that I think are historically unreliable. Don't, don't, even, don't even waste your time with that. Just come right back to these authors that believe what you believe and cite them and stand on that. And, and these other things you can work out at another time. But it's like whenever I have Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door, and that, that frequently happens, I already know that they have a program of, of questions that they have to ask and have certain answers that they need to hear. They're already prepared for certain kinds of answers, but I, I, I just throw them off. I don't even bother with their questions at all. I'll go to asking all kinds of other questions myself. So one time, years ago, I had a, a father and I think his daughter and maybe somebody else that came to the door. And so he was asking me to know how the world was going to end. It was going to be a nuclear holocaust and all of that. And was I prepared for it? And so while he was going through all of that, I just leaned down to his, his little daughter that he had with him. I said, now, I said, now, dear, I said, one day, I said, you're going to grow up, you're going to get big, and you're going to realize all of this isn't true. That's what I said. <clears throat> well, Daddy wasn't ready for that. 
<laughs> so, so, so dad, dad grabbed his daughter as quick as he could and got her off that porch and they went on to the, to, to the next house. Here's the thing. When, when people are unsure of how to respond and they get flustered, then they, they, they very often want to stop the conversation and go a different direction. Now, that's what an atheist want, want, would like to happen to you. They would love to be in a conversation with you, and then you don't have an answer, and because you, you can't get your words and everything together, then pretty soon you just shut up and clam up and don't want to talk anymore. Stay with the verses that you know. If all you know is John 3.16, then you stay with John 3.16. God so loved the world. And then work from there. God loved the world that he made. And that's how, that's how you witness and you stay strong. Uh, the other thing that we can learn from Paul in this is he went to Athens on his own. And verse 16 says he was stirred up inside when he saw all of the idolatry. He was by himself. So do not let the environment intimidate you. This happens too much and too often to Christians. You put a Christian in a room with a bunch of non-Christians, and then sometimes he or she will not even be vocal with what they believe or live what they believe because they're worried about how they could possibly be attacked. I'm not saying you've got to be like Paul and stand up on top of the desk and get a megaphone and say, look, you folks need Jesus or you're lost and it's, it's, it's over. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that you should not permit the environment to intimidate you because if you, if you do that, how is God going to ever have a witness? Okay, he can't have a witness if we have a muzzle on. If the dog has a muzzle on, he can't bark. If he can't bark and bite, he's of no value if he's there to protect you. If our role is to witness for Jesus and to share the message, and just because your brother or your cousin or your neighbor who's a a very strong atheist and can't stand religious people, and they come around and they know they can intimidate you, God will never have anybody to speak for him. So don't, don't let that happen. And then uh, verse 16 again, it says he saw the idolatry, he was stirred up. Uh, it, it's, it should bother you when you see false worship and a lack of reverence for God. It should bother you. It should never be such a, a condition of your heart that you've, you've grown complacent with idolatry. Now we see it all the time in our own nation. These things should grieve us. They should grieve us. They should sadden us. To see sometimes how we'll try to suppress Christianity, which brought about the exaltation of this nation and all of the earth. But yet now we try to promote whatever is pagan, while at the same time denying the fact that Jesus has such a, 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 pivotal, a pivotal part and role in the history of the United States of America. So th- those kinds of things grieve me. When I hear, I, th- I think it was... Uh, Last, uh, last week, I saw a thing on the news, and they said some college, the young people wanted to have a day of absence for uh, the people on the campus. And I think if you were a teacher and you were Caucasian, they pretty much wanted to forbid you to come to campus to teach your class. And it's interesting to me, I mean, have a day of absence for the white teachers, but all the white students were the ones protesting and ready to blow everything up and beat teachers up that, that didn't come. And, and I thought to myself, these kinds of things weren't happening in the 19th century, okay, or the 18th century. And that's because there was, there was a much more prominent uh, position that people took in regards to Jesus Christ. 
something as simple as the Ten Commandments. But when you get rid of the Ten Commandments and you pull morality, the, the precepts of morality out of school, then you have what I had growing up in Cleveland, Ohio in high school. And you go down into the basement and for 50 cents you can buy some prophylactics. You just stick it in the machine and come out and you have everything you need. This is, this is where the, the nation certainly has swerved. And then the, the other thing, <clears throat> you'll notice verse 19 of Acts 17. Verse 19, they said, we want to know of this doctrine. So here's something that's very important also. Be ready to give an answer to everybody that asks you about what you believe. Someone asks you about Jesus or about the resurrection, be ready to give an answer. And, and that's how Paul was up there on that hill. When I witness to people who don't believe in God, <clears throat> I try to be tactful. You know, you want to be loving. Scripture says speak the truth in love. And when I have people who, uh, when they find out that I am a pastor, sometimes people go out of their way to become more vulgar, you see, just to see if they can push the right kind of buttons and see how I'm going going to act. And I, I think I've told you this, this one, but it bears repeating again. We, we had a, a, a person one time in one of the, the towns, and they were a, a academic you know, teacher and all this kind of a thing. And, and this person was a lesbian and, and was a very outspoken, very aggressive uh, lady. I mean, just a lot of folks were intimidated by her because she's just manly in the way she, she conducted herself. So I was in a meeting one time in this town. I'd been invited to come. And so I'm sitting there, and this is back when I think Obama was getting ready to run and Bush was coming out and all of these kinds of things. And, and we're sitting there at this meeting, <clears throat> and, and I walked in, I sit down, I got probably 15, 16 people sitting around me. And, and this lady, she's just doing all the talking. And you know how it is when one person is talking, you can look at the faces of other people and you can see they have this look like, I just wish she'd shut up or wish he'd shut up. Just, it's one of them kind of deals. And so I'm just looking around. I wasn't saying anything anyhow. And, and she started in on this stuff with Bush. He's Hitler and all this stuff. And he ought to be tried on war crimes. And, and, and then she goes in and starts talking about the, the virtues and values of Obama and all this stuff. And I mean, she's just hitting people hard. And I can see people are just grieved by all of this. So finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I said to this lady in front of everybody, I said, I, I assume, I said, you, you're not going to be happy until the president's got people out there sodomizing one another on the White House lawn. And she looked at me and dropped her head, and everybody was kind of giving me that look. And, and, that, and that, that ended the whole conversation. But, but here's, what, here's what I'm getting at. People who, who disagree with Scripture and who don't believe in God, some of them are very aggressive. And if you're not careful, they'll just take their thumb and just push you down. Now, I'm not saying that's the, that's the appropriate response in every situation, but that was the appropriate response in that situation. Because I wasn't mean-spirited or anything. Let, let's go over to Romans chapter, chapter number uh, 1. Romans chapter number 1. I want us to move into something else. I, I made the statement that, I made the statement last time that when atheists 
say there is no God, that God could just as well say he doesn't believe in atheism. And I told you that even though a person claims to be an atheist, that as we look into Romans chapter 1, we, we observe that there cannot be a true class or condition called atheism because of what the scriptures teach. That what happens is that a person denies what they inwardly know to be true. And that's why they're so disturbed by it. So in Romans chapter 1 then, let's start with, uh, let's start with verse number Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we need to know who he's talking to. Who did he write this letter to? Verse seven, it says to everyone that's in Rome. Beloved of God, called to be saints. So everybody in Rome can find something in this if it makes it to them. But certainly the Christians are going to be beneficiaries of the wisdom of Paul. Verse 18 speaks of the wrath of God. Now, there are people today that will tell you there is no such thing as the wrath of God, that God is not angry with people. However, Ephesians talks about the wrath of God and us being the children of wrath, children of disobedience. The, the term wrath of God, that word, we, we can find that in the New Testament at least 15 different times. The reason the phrase wrath of God is something people don't like today because we don't like the image of a God that's displeased with any kind of behavior. Everything pleases God. Who are you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? Who are you to disapprove of me, to judge my actions and to say they're immoral? Who are you to say I'm unethical? I'm not anybody. But the scripture is what judges us. The scripture is what tries us. The scripture is what help us, helps us to know the truth. God's given us this conscience inside of us. This conscience, it either accuses us of wrongdoing or it excuses us when we're doing well. And the conscience is shaped by the word of God. So verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. If a person does not recognize there's something ungodly or something unrighteous, they're going to struggle with the idea of God being displeased. Now, there's a psalm that says God's angry with the sinner every day. His bow is bent towards their destruction. The arrow is aimed at their heart. If it hits them mortally, they'll end up passing away. That's all figurative language, but the whole point is, is, is very simple. If a person says, now, my God doesn't get angry. Okay, then my question is, what do you do with most of this Bible? The book of Revelation is about the end of time, judgments that are going to come. Generally, since we have a, 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 a nation today and a generation that is pluralistic and non-judgmental and doesn't like to hear the word no, we, we tend to take the attributes of God that we like and we magnify them. So we say God is love. He is. I don't think there's anybody in here that would disagree with that. God so loved the world. Scripture says that, that he that knows God has passed from death to life. We know it by their love for the brethren. So we understand that. But God is love, but he's also jealous. He's also holy. See, all of these things. He, he's, he, he's also a God that can become angry. 
all of these things. He's righteous. Well, the last sentence of verse 18 speaks of people who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That means they hold it in such a way they're suppressing it. They're holding it back. They're holding it back. And then it tells you how. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath shown it to them. Now, you either believe what, what Paul is saying or you don't. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. According to verse 19, God is knowable. The knowledge of God is transmittable in what can be known of God is manifested in such a way that people will know that there is a God. It is something inside of us that bears witness with all of the creation on the outside that says there is a God behind all of this. That's why I said, according to Paul, there is no such thing as atheism. There might be people who don't believe in God in the sense, I'm not going to live for God. I'm not interested in God. I hate the concept of God. But the idea of somebody not having something inside of them that lets them know he's real, according to Paul, he says that's impossible. So if you're talking to an atheist, you read this verse to him, you say, well, well, this right here tells me you're not being honest with me. That means we have a moral problem here. Because you're lying. Paul says what, what is known of God has been manifest to you, but you have decided to hold that truth and unrighteousness. You've chosen to suppress that knowledge that is in you because you don't want it to bear witness with the fact that God is real. That, that's, that's Paul's argument here. The invisible things. Now this is similar to something that Aristotle had said and wrote in one of his books. And Aristotle was some four or five hundred years before Paul, but I give you, give you a quote from, from his, his book on, uh, on the universe. Now, he, he made this statement. He says, In every mortal, by nature, the invisible God becomes, by those very works, visible. He becomes visible by what has been made. Now, I have no idea if that's what Paul is quoting or citing, but I can tell you this. The statement he's making in verse 20 is something people in that age would have known. They would have understood. So whether it's the, the color of the petal of a rose. You, you could find the best paint mixers on the planet. They're not going to mix enough paints to be able to produce the color of that beautiful red rose. It's not going to happen. When you think of the orderliness in the, in the starry skies at night, when you look up in there, there's no way on this planet somebody's going to be able to, to, to look at that and just say that there's no order to that at all. See? So this is, what, this is what Paul's argument is. He says, everything about creation says there's somebody working behind it. And then it tells us in the last sentence of verse 20 that it teaches us about God's eternal power. And it's God here. Now, what does it say of his eternal power? There's no end to it. Every day the sun comes up and the sun goes down. Just as sure as you're sitting here right now. Every evening the stars appear. Even if the clouds are in the sky and you can't see. So it's just a, a never ending thing. And then it teaches of the Godhead that the nature of God, the character of God is one of design and order. That's Paul's argument. So I'll go back to something I said earlier. 
when you're talking with someone who says they don't believe in God, this is where you start. Now, they're going to tell you what Darwin said, or they're going to tell you what Huxley said, or some other person from that era, or maybe even some modern, uh, some modern uh, scientist or something like that. But you come back to Paul. You come back to Paul. Everybody is quoting somebody. Everybody's using somebody as their authority. You use the scripture as yours. Because the scripture, according to what it says, the scripture is alive and is powerful and is sharp. It's the only thing that can bring conviction. It's not going to bring conviction if you're just arguing and you're just telling people, well, my grandmother said this. Or, or I heard a guy say that. But if you're quoting scripture, you're quoting something that is living truth because the word of God is, is unchanging. Now He says at the last of verse 20 then, so they are without excuse. And this is why I believe so many people who despise God and don't believe in God are tormented by the notion of God. That's why they hate Christians so much. So you, 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 you have these, these, uh, these uh, at Christmas time, these people put up these billboards, God is not great. I mean, why, why, I mean, why even put something up there unless you're just, I mean, if that, that thought isn't just bothering you all the time. That's what it is. They're just tormented by that thought. And it's not just something that they see in the street. They wrestle with it in the bed at night because you can't escape the presence of God. The psalmist said, where can I flee from the presence of the Lord? He said, if I ascend up in the heavens, he's there. Even when they went up to the moon and were orbiting up there years ago when they, when they read from well, the first time they had the transmission from up there back here and everybody was sitting around the radio and watching the television to hear what was going to be said. And the first thing the astronauts read was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. People are tormented by that thought. And then the psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. So there, without excuse, there will never be a person who stands before God and says, I had no idea you existed. God will say, you saw me in the blade of grass. You recognized I was there in the forestry. You saw the, the mountains that were dug out. You saw the differences in the topography of this world, the landscape. said the farmer climbs up on that tractor. Four seasons every year, he watches life come into manifestation every time he puts that seed in the ground. Scripture says, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die by it alone. That is why generally when you're talking to farmers, you rarely meet farmers that are atheists. They see the whole process over and over again. Put it in the ground, then it comes up. Put it in the ground, then it comes up. That's life. That's, that's the way God has so designed this. Okay, well in verse 21... It says, when they knew God, there, there was a point. There was a point. They were in that direction thinking about God, had some understanding. They did not glorify him as God. They didn't adore him, give him the adoration due him. Neither were they thankful. Well, think of the communists and socialists that don't believe in God. Lenin, folks like that. But became, that's transformation. It didn't start that way became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Going back to what I said, a baby doesn't come into this world an atheist. Somebody has to put that information in there. Now, even when I was a kid and I would lay down on the front grass with my friends at the age of seven and eight and look up into the sky, 
<clears throat> I couldn't have told you anything about God, but I knew I didn't make all of that. And I knew that stuff didn't just happen overnight. But if somebody would have asked me as a kid, do you believe in God? I might have said something like, I don't know. But I, I know I would not have said no. There's too much. There's just too much stuff that was was around. Aside from the fact that every now and then I'd hear grandma pray and stuff like that, and I'd have to go to church and and, and things of that of that nature. If if man is not created to be some kind of a religious being, then why is it that in every culture of this world you got religious people? The earliest writings and texts that we have deal with religion. All of them. Deal with religion. The poetry. Okay, go back to Homer's Iliad and all of that, that kind of a thing. The Sumerian texts and all of that. Let's look at it again. Verse 21. When they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God and they weren't thankful. So the, the person who, who has some understanding of God, and then they, they, their mind begins to go in reverse because they stop believing in God because of religious people that they've seen. They stop glorifying God. They stop being thankful for God, and pretty soon their imaginations, their thought process, their thinking becomes vain or wrong, and then pretty soon everything on the inside is darkened. Okay? Darkened. Just like Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. In darkness, nothing was being created. And when you have a person filled with darkness, how can tell you there's nothing moral or ethical coming out of there that you want to imitate? How do you think we have these serial killers? And when, when these people are interviewed, they tell you about the thought. They're tormented by the thoughts and stuff. And, and, and they hear all these voices constantly. There's a darkness inside of people when people start going in the opposite direction of God. If a person's not growing in grace and in knowledge and becoming a giant in the kingdom of God, they're becoming a pygmy. They're becoming strong in sin, but they're becoming a pygmy when it comes to the things that God wants them to know. So verse 22, the, the natural consequence of all of this is you begin to profess yourself to be wise and you're, you're actually a fool. Psalm 14, 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. So you listen to these haughty-minded people that get on television and they're on these interviews. And, and, and I listen to, to some of them. They'd be on Fox News or CNN, these reporters and stuff. And they, they don't mind telling you, all. I don't believe in a religion. I don't believe in a God. And they'll mock the Lord and say all kinds of things. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea what's out in front of you on the other, on the other side of your last breath have no idea on this earth. But they profess themselves to be wise because you Christian folks, your minds are slaves to scripture and you're not free thinkers like everybody else who doesn't believe in God, except the free thinkers don't know that they themselves are slaves to sin. They don't understand that. That whole concept is different. So the natural consequence of not glorifying God and being thankful to God is the transformation of our thinking in verse 21 the foolish heart becomes darkened we profess ourselves to be wise but we're really fools so that means we're losing our ability to discern between what's right and what's wrong so the the, the old testament talks about people calling what is what is evil good and calling what is good evil now tiffany was watching a show the other day and she told me that um it was an episode where somehow or another they were talking about disciplining children. 
and talking about spanking or something like that. And, and the, the father was saying, I think, to the son-in-law, something to the effect of, why don't you just spank the child? Because I think the, 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 uh, the son-in-law was saying, well, to get the child to do what we want, we offer the child ice cream or something like that. And so the, 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 the son-in-law said to the parent, well, you, oh, you're of that generation where you spank. That, we call that lazy parenting. See? Lazy parenting. And uh, the good parenting now is where you negotiate with the kid. And this is what I'm thinking of with Proverbs. Now, Proverbs says foolishness is born in the heart of Steve, and the rod drive it far from. I didn't write that. That's in the book. I'm telling you, that's in the book. So if, if something that's in the scripture from thousands of years ago is there, God must have had it there for a reason. And I told you that there's something supernatural about the way dad would grab me by the belt loop, pull it up, and then rather with a bare hand or something in that hand, he's going to take an instrument and hit that fatty portion of my backside, which immediately sends, sends thoughts and sends messages from south to north. So that I understand exactly the kind of trouble that I'm in and what I did was wrong. And that happens just like that. God said that's how it's supposed to be. So people today in our generation say, well, that's lazy parenting. If that's bad, you shouldn't do that. Now let's look back here at Romans 1 again. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, <clears throat> here's what else they did. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now at this time, when Paul was alive, if, if, if a person had been to Greece, they would see all kinds of statues to the different kinds of gods they worship. Zeus, Hermes, Apollo. And the one thing that the, that the Greeks admired was beauty. And if you've ever been in a museum or seen some kind of a, a uh, photograph of, of some of the ancient gods, you know that a lot of the gods are, are posing nude, because they admired beauty. That's, that's, that's what they were into, the, the physical symmetry of the, of the body. But yet, yet Paul says they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like man. Why in the world would you want a God that you can build? You understand? Why would you want a God made out of clay or stone that you could fashion with your own hands? That's what he's saying. And when he's talking about animals, there are a lot of religions in this world where you have the, uh, the creatures that represent the God. Certainly in ancient Egypt, they had a lot of that then. We certainly have a lot of that now in Hinduism. In Hinduism. I've told you about in my travels, going to different places in these different countries. Uh, there, there are a lot of people that worship animals. And you can go to India and they have an entire temple dedicated to the rat god. So you literally hundreds of thousands or just say thousands of millions of rats just crawl throughout this temple every day. And people come from all over the country just to to dip themselves in the water 
of, 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 of that temple. And you can, and if you see the documentaries and pictures, you'll see the so many rats just by the, by the hundreds, just falling off into these pools of water and people, they're leaning over, putting their hand down in there, and they're drinking that water because they believe that's a God that'll heal. This is what Paul is talking about. When that mind turns carnal and moves from truth to falsity, then it, it begins to debase the human mind, and it manifests itself in our actions. The darkened heart that started with a vain imagination now is going to lead to us doing things we're not supposed to do simply because it's a downward spiral from depravity to debasement. That's what it is. And because of that, verse 24, God, the three give ups of God start right here. Verse 24, 26 and 28. The three give ups of God. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Well, we already found out in verse 21, the foolish heart was darkened to the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So God has given dignity to the human person by creating us. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But if you don't believe that God is behind your creation, then your idea of dignity and self-esteem is going to be different. Like Shirley MacLaine many years ago, she, she's a person who believes in reincarnation. And, and I remember in, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book she wrote that really got, got her popular in connection with all of this. But, but there's a, there's a part in there where she's been interviewed and they were asking her about rape and stuff like that. And, and she was saying something like, well, if, if a person goes through that in this life, then that has to happen for them to be able to come back in that next life and be in a greater position. See, reincarnation. But if, if you have this idea that Genesis 1 isn't true and God isn't behind the creation of man, then you remove the dignity and the honor that we ought to extend to one another. You see, this is why Taking the life of a baby isn't a problem. We don't care anymore. We kill them on this end when they're young. We don't care about the older people. I mean, after all, we euthanize them on this end when they're old. And then everything in between, you just got every, every kind of a thing going on, killing people, shooting people, stabbing people. And the worth of the human individual is, is no longer a, a precious thing. And that's because that mind has, has gone dark. That's, that's what it is. And if you listen to people and they try to justify their actions, it's the weirdest thing. It doesn't even make sense. It makes sense to them, but it doesn't make any sense to you at all. So I, I'll listen to people in interviews, and they will spend 15 minutes explaining why we need to do everything we can to save the trees in South America. Because it's going to help the environment. We can breathe better. And why we need to make sure that the, that the dolphins don't have any difficulties out there in the ocean. And God help us with that, that, that uh, spotted owl out there in Redwood National Forest. If we start cutting too many of them trees down, that owl's not going to have a place to, to, uh, to rest. So they'll spend minute after minute explaining that. Then when you mention something about abortion, they say, oh, well, you know, that's just fetal tissue in the mama's womb. Now, for me, it's nonsense. But for that darkened mind, they honestly believe they have justification for that belief. That's what I'm saying. The first give up of God. He gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. So the, the things they were desiring to do was perverted. It, it, it was bad. 
and it was affecting them physically. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. Notice the manipulation. And worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. How do you change the truth of God into a lie? You just convince people that what they had believed was incorrect. And that we have light and truth that's better than yesterday. Now I do understand that as far as technology, what we have today is a whole lot better than what we had yesterday. I mean, I, I understand that. But sin is the same in this generation as it was a thousand years ago. The only difference, we got, we got different ways to sin now. Nobody could sit at home and watch the, watch the television and sin like they could a hundred years ago and even today. They, they certainly couldn't uh, have, a, have a computer where they could see stuff online that they weren't supposed to see. A thousand years ago. But, but now little kids carried around in their telephone. They can see whatever they want to see. And very often mom and dad can't even get into the thing to see what in the world they're looking at. They just lock it up. This is what I'm saying. And the, 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 the truth that, that has changed is in essence everything that Paul has been talking about up until this point. Starting from verse 1 coming all the way, all the way down. He's been telling us that God manifests himself through creation. They changed that say that's not true. Talk about people becoming foolish and they think that they're smart. They'll change the truth of God into a lie to make the smart people seem like they're fools and the foolish people seem like they're smart. Verse 25, they worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed and ever, forever and ever. So they, they began to focus more on the human than they did on God. And that is a very important, important uh, principle in, in what's going on even in these last days. We, we get God out of the picture and we talk about us. Most important person is you. You. You have the right to do what you want to do. Verse 26. For this cause, here's a second give up. God gave them unto vile affections. In the Greek, it's talking about uh, pathetic passions. Passions that are just terrible. Notice this. For even their women in the Greek females, did change the natural use of that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, in the Greek, males, leaving the natural, notice how we keep running into that word there, natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was me. In Paul's day, homosexuality was rife in that Greek and Roman culture. Now, you listen to what I'm about to tell you. In that ancient Greek culture, it was common for there to exist relationships between adult males and young boys. We call it pedophilia, pederasty. But those were common. And they were normal in certain segments of that ancient Greek society. So this is why in America we've had this, this strong push from, from them people in that NAMBA organization, the National Association of Man-Boy Relationships, where they want to get rid of all the Romeo-Juliet laws so that if you're a 45-year-old man, if you want to be with a 9-year-old boy, why is that a bad thing? 
If you're a 62-year-old woman and you want to be with a 13-year-old girl, why, why is that a bad thing? Why should it be criminalized? Why should there be a stigma when in ancient times there were places where this went on? Well, this is why God told the children of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, man cannot lie with man, woman shall not lie with woman, because the other cultures did it. And this is why Paul is saying right here, you can't do it now. But he says, when you see it happening, you need to understand God has given somebody up to vile affections. The second give up of God. Now, this, this ought to be interesting to you. This is a new Oxford annotated Bible. Fully revised fourth edition. Now, the reason I... I have some of these new Bibles is because I like to see what some of the new preachers are studying in seminary and in the divinity departments of the universities so that I can understand what it is they're preaching in their congregations out here in the heartland and along the coast. So on these passages right here that are obvious and plain and clear, let me just read to you a short study note. It says, while the Torah, talking about the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, forbids a male lying with a male as with a woman, then it quotes Leviticus 18.22. It says, Paul's Jewish contemporaries criticized a range of sexual behaviors common in the Greco-Roman world. Although widely read today as a reference to homosexuality, the language of unnatural intercourse was more often used in Paul's day to denote not the orientation of sexual desire, but its immoderate indulgence, which was believed to weaken the body. So this this. This paragraph for those notes basically says it's not homosexuality he's condemning. It's homosexuality that is not practiced with moderation. Too many relationships. So the story of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, that wasn't bad because they were men wanting to have relations with men. It was bad because they were men that wanted to rape men. That's why it was bad. See. Well, this goes back to verse 25 then, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator, verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. That means there are sentiments and feelings that a person can have for somebody else that are illegitimate. The, the argument we hear over and over again is, don't I have a right to love whoever I want to love? No, you don't. No, you don't. You, you do have a right to experience love, but in its proper boundaries. But you don't have a right to just love anybody that you want to love. There's no constitutional right for that. We, we know the story of King David. You remember how King David had a daughter named, I believe her name was Tamar. And he had a son by the name of Amnon. And you remember the Bible says that Amnon looked at Tamar and she was beautiful and he fell in love with her. And then, and then Amnon started trying to figure out how in the world can he, can he have her and make her his and have a relationship with his own sister? And, and so he, he, he faked like he was ill, and then he sent one of the workers to, to tell his dad to send his 
daughter, which was his sister, to him to check on him and look on him, look after him and make him some food that he liked. And so while he was laying there and his sister was just looking after him and taking care of the little prince and all of that, then she, he, he, he sits up, he pounces upon her and he forces her and he rapes her. And then after he was done with her, according to what the scripture says, he jumped up and said, get out of here. And said the hatred he had for her in the end was greater than the love he had for her in the beginning. And that's what set in motion those painful circumstances with Absalom, the brother, who basically made a decision in his heart. He's going to put a knife in his brother's heart for raping his sister. See? Now, if someone says to me, I have a right to love who I want to love, then I'll say, no, because you can put your love in the wrong place. I'm not doubting that, you, that your name is Jack and you love that guy who, who's, who's by the name of Muhammad, but what I am telling you is that it's wrong, and you're not supposed to put your, play, your love in that place. What's going to happen if, if we ever have, <clears throat> if we ever have a, a dad who has strong affections for his daughter? See? Yeah. What's going to happen if you ever have a mother with, with affections for her son? And we don't need to go there, but I can tell you right now, all across this nation, there's a whole lot of sexual abuse going on right now because of vile affections. You hear me? Vile affections. For this cause, God gave them up. Vile affections for their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature. Women know that they're made for men. Men know that they're made for women. And it's, it's this... This nation that we're living in, the culture of the West now that is, has gone in reverse. And so we've changed the truth of God into a lie. God's plan in the beginning has always been for male and female because you can't procreate and multiply apart from that. That society that wants to promote this knows that they cannot promote and multiply this unless they have kids. They've got to have kids to put this in their minds to, to help them to understand that so that there'll be another generation of people that believe that. And that is why there's been such a strong attack in the past 15 years and 20 years on these adoption agencies. Because these people who practice this, they need kids. Because they can't have any on their own. Two men can't have kids. Two women can't, can't have kids. All right, let's, let's move on. Men working with with men, that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. Now, there's no other way to read this other than in the negative light. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. See, they, they know this is wrong. This is what Paul is saying. That's his argument. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What's a reprobate mind? The inability to discriminate between right and wrong. That's what a reprobate mind is. It's a person who's now standing at a crossroads in their spiritual condition where now everything is okay. It's not moral or immoral, it's amoral. I don't care what you do. I just think if, if that's what she wants to do, that's her business. What, what business is it of mine to tell her what she can do or he can do? That's an amoral mind. That's a reprobate mind that, that does not want to take a stand for truth. Now I hear that with teenagers today. Well, I can't understand what, if, if, if he likes him and, and she likes her, why is that a problem? I mean, why, how is that your business? Why, why, does it, why does it bother you? It bothers me because 
it's very similar to what Paul saw when he was standing in Ephesus and he saw the whole city given over to idolatry. I see sin. I see sin. And I, I'm very concerned when I have to sit and listen to people who are Christians and they just, I don't see anything wrong with it. What's, what's the problem? The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And he says here in verse 28, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do, to practice those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, if you go back up here to verse 18, we'll connect verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 29, you can see, being filled with all unrighteousness. People constantly say, well, I I wonder if God's ever going to judge America or judge these nations because of these different sins. Folks, that is the judgment of God. (laughs) That is the judgment of God. God's turned turned people over to a point they can't even think the truth anymore. When When I listen to our politicians, whether Republican or Democrat or whatever they are, and I hear the arguments that they make, I realize we're dealing with a nation right now that has very little common sense when it comes to this book here. Now, if you ask me, are we, are we going to ever be able to make the turn and come back? I have no idea. I, I can only tell you right now that everything you read there in verse 29, 30, and 31, 32, that's us. That's our nation. That's the West. That's parts of Africa. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And in the verse 27, it says there's a recompense of error that comes to these folks. That means if you're going to practice certain kinds of what we'll call high-risk lifestyles, then you have to expect that you're going to reap the penalty and the rewards of that high-risk lifestyle. Yeah, that is what happens. Okay, so what and how do you tie all of that together? That atheist mind lives in a world in which God is not important. So there really is no such thing as morality other than what a handful of people think is right or wrong. But we as Christians, we stand for what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is plain as we saw from Romans chapter 1. That evolutionary concept is there to give people an outlook and a perspective on life that changes the way we approach man and interpret the behavior of people. But I'm telling you, man's behavior is not evolving and getting better and better. I showed you in Romans chapter 1 that man's becoming vain in his imagination when he walks away from God and moves out into sin. So it's not that he's getting better, he's getting worse. He's getting worse. And the only answer out of that gutter is redemption. And that's what the book of Romans is all about. Paul starts off with the first chapter, the second chapter explaining that man is under sin. Second chapter explaining that man's without excuse. Chapter three, he starts taking them into the answer to the problem, and that's Christ. The only way out of this gutter is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. It's truth. 
We love you. We appreciate the fact that it's so plain and clear to us. Father, where we have failed to live in accordance with your scripture and to line up with your word, we ask you to forgive us now. But God, give us the grace and the love and the compassion and the mercy for those people that yet live in sin, but yet help us to rescue them out of it. These things we do pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen.